Well, I, I tell you what, as I was preparing for tonight, I, I'm really torn as to how long this is going to take. I, I was trying not to over-prepare and t- keep you too long here, but then I looked at the notes and I thought, well, I may be done in 20 or 30 minutes. Now, don't get your hopes up, but uh, we're not, I, if I let you out a little bit early, that'll be okay. Of course, every time I say I'm going to let you out early, uh, it rarely works that way, but we'll just see how it goes. I, I just want to ask you, would you join me? I want to pray and just ask for the Holy Spirit to speak to us from His Holy Word. Father, I thank You for today. I thank You for Your love and Your mercy. I thank You for the truth of Your Word. And tonight, we acknowledge that Your Word is true. Your Word is truth. And You even reveal in Your Word what we can expect in the future. So tonight, I pray that by the power of Your Holy Spirit, You would be our teacher You'd open the Word, help us to understand it, open our hearts, open our minds, that we might hear from heaven tonight. Father, we know that you've written this for our benefit, and now by the Holy Spirit, would you teach us for our good? So now, once again, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart would be acceptable to you, O Lord, my strength and my Redeemer. And I pray that in Jesus' name, amen. There are five end-time events that I believe every believer needs to understand. The rapture, the tribulation, the antichrist, the second coming of Christ, and the millennium. Of course, that's basically the, the outline of what we're studying on these five Sunday nights about understanding the last days. Last couple of Sunday nights, we've looked at the rapture. First Sunday night was more of an introduction to the whole concept of, of the second coming and what that means. And then last Sunday night, we dug into this teaching about the rapture. So tonight, we turn our attention to the next subject, and that is the tribulation. Just for summary's sake, in case you were not here last week or perhaps the week before, let me give you the three things kind of on a timeline that I believe summarizes the teaching of the second coming. And that is, the first thing on the timeline is what we would call the rapture, the taking up of the church, God coming for his own. Uh, We believe, I believe, that that will occur at the beginning of the tribulation or right before the tribulation starts. So that would be the first item on the timeline. And then there would be a seven-year time period that called the tribulation. After the church is raptured, there's there's a seven-year time period of the tribulation. And then the, the third or the, the next stage would be the second coming of Christ at the end of the tribulation. So remember now, as we talk about the tribulation, in summary, what it's going to be. It'll be a period filled with unprecedented horrors and persecutions and natural disasters, massive loss of life and political turmoil. We'll talk about why all of that is occurring in just a few moments. But it's going to be seven years. Think of it in these terms. You know how 2020 has been, right? Worldwide, and what a a headache that has been. That is nothing compared to what's going to be happening in the tribulation. It it, it is small in comparison to the death and the, the destruction that is going to occur for seven years. Not just for one year. We're only, what, ten months into this thing? if that long, but, but in the tribulation, it's going to be a seven-year period of time. 
And we'll dig into what all of that, what will be occurring there. Let me give you a definition. Let's start there. Definition of tribulation. Just that word, tribulation. The Greek word, thalipsis, uh, is a term that designates, it's an interesting term, a term. It designates a giant weight used to crush grain into flour. That this, this word, this Greek word is this idea of a giant weight crushing something. So the idea behind the tribulation is that it is an utterly crushing and pulverizing event. And not just for a group of people, but for the entire world. Now, I want you to take your Bibles and let's just begin to... We're going to be using the Bibles a lot. I hope you've understood that and you bring your Bible. But I want to start with a passage of Scripture in the Old Testament that's a little bit hard to find. And so let me just tell you the best way to find it before we even tell you what the book is. Find Matthew. That's pretty easy. It's, of course, the first book of the New Testament. Go to the left once you find Matthew, and you'll come to the book of Malachi. And keep going to the left, and you'll go past the book of Zechariah. And keep going to the left, and you'll go past the book of Haggai. And then you'll come to the little book called Zephaniah. That's where we want to park tonight for a few minutes. Zephaniah chapter 1. This Old Testament prophet, one of what we call the minor prophets, this Old Testament prophet describes this time of tribulation. And here's the words that God gave him to share. He says, chapter 1, verse 14 through verses 18, if you're taking notes. The great day of the Lord is near, near and coming quickly. Listen, the cry of the day of the Lord will be what, church? Bitter. Cry of the day of the Lord will be bitter, and the shouting of the warrior there. That day will be a day of, underlying this, that day will be a day of wrath. We'll talk about that, but underline it. That day will be a day of wrath, a day of distress and anguish, a day of trouble and ruin, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and blackness, a day of of trumpet and battle cry against the fortified cities and against the corner towers. Verse 17, I will bring distress on the people and they will walk like blind men because they have sinned against the Lord. Their blood will be poured out like dust and their entrails like filth. Neither their silver nor their gold will be able to save them on the day of the Lord's wrath. There's that phrase again, the Lord's wrath. In the fire of his jealousy, the whole world will be consumed. For he will make a sudden end of all who live in the earth. Notice that last phrase, or next to last phrase. The whole world will be consumed. For he will make a sudden end of all who live in the earth. So that's Zephaniah's description, we believe, of the tribulation. And it's referred to throughout the Bible. We won't uh, take time to read these, but let me just give you some references you might want to write down. Paul referred to this time as the wrath to come, 1 Thessalonians 1.10. Paul referred to this time of tribulation as the wrath to come. John called it in Revelation 3.10, John called it the hour of trial. Daniel described it as a time of trouble such as never was since there was a nation, Daniel 12.1. He said it was, it's a time of trouble such as never was since there was a nation. Jesus talked about the, about the tribulation, and he talked about the tribulation as a time of terror and horror, 
without precedent. Let me show you this. I do want to take time to read this. Go to the right. Find the book of Matthew. First book of the New Testament. Matthew chapter 24. Matthew chapter 24. And beginning in verse 21. For then there will be a great distress. Some Bibles say a great tribulation. Anybody's Bible here? You got it? It says great tribulation? Yeah. Some say, the NIV says a great distress. Other Bibles say a great tribulation. Unequaled from the beginning of the world until now. And never to be equaled again. This time of tribulation will be unlike anything the world has ever seen. And after that, the world will never see another time like it. In verse 22, if those days had not been cut short, no one would survive. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be shortened. Jesus talked about this time of tribulation as a time of terror and a time of horror. Unlike anything this world has ever seen or ever will see. Now, we come to the main passage that deals with revelation or with uh, tribulation, and that's in the book of Revelation. So if you go over to that last book of the New Testament, the book of Revelation. Revelation chapters 4 through 19. How many chapters are in, Re- in Revelation? Talk to me real quick. How many chapters in Revelation? How, how many? 22, thank you. 22 chapters. Now understand this. Chapters 4 through 19, the majority of the book, chapters 4 through 19, deal in some form or fashion with the, revela- with the tribulation. I don't know why I keep trying to say revelation tonight. So I'll try to correct it here in a moment. Revelation chapter 6 through 19 gives us a vivid detail, and, and really beginning in chapter 4 through chapter 19, a vivid detail and description of the horrors of the tribulation period. Think about that. The majority of the book, 22 chapters, the majority of the book, 4 through 19, deals with the horrors of the tribulation in great detail. Now, there's two characteristics, if you're taking notes, that will distinguish the tribulation from other difficult times in history. You know, our world has gone through difficult times, haven't they? There's been all kinds, uh, the Holocaust, for example, an awful, horrific time in our world history. And so there's two things that's really going to distinguish this time of tribulation from all the other difficult times in history. Here they are. Number one, it will be a worldwide event, not a localized event. A worldwide event, not a localized one. You see, right now, there are certain areas of the world that are at peace while others are at war. Right now, there are certain areas of the world where Christians suffer persecution, and there's some place, many places where we have great freedoms, like in our country. Right now, famine ravages some countries, a few countries in our world, but not most of them. The tribulation, however, will be a time of worldwide occurrences. I'll give you an example, just from personal experience, a recent example. I remember hearing about the coronavirus when it was in China. And I remember saying this to myself, I'm not too concerned about that, that's in China. Now that may be cold-hearted, but that was my first thought. I'm not real concerned about that, that was China. I think I prayed for those people. If I, we're going to say I prayed for them, because <laughs> it sounds better. 
But I really think I did. I really think I did pray for them. But I remember having the distinct thought, I'm not concerned about that. That's in China. And the before long, it wasn't in China. It was worldwide. And I remember sitting in my office one day realizing that some of our friends around the world, our missionary friends around the world, were experiencing the coronavirus just like we were. I remember our friends in Costa Rica. They were, I was reading some articles from them about the coronavirus there in Costa Rica. I remember talking to our friends in Thailand. They were dealing with the coronavirus. I remember dealing, talking to my pastor friend Johnny Touche in Africa, and they were talking about the coronavirus. And it hit me one day as I was sitting in the office, this is not just a localized event somewhere in China. It's an incredible thing that it is absolutely around the world now. That's just one small event that illustrates what the tribulation time will be like. The coronavirus is in some ways simply a dress rehearsal for what is to come on a much, much larger scale. I'm really convinced that the news agency will not have enough airtime to talk about all that will be going on in that time. So one of the characteristics of the tribulation that sets it apart from all the other horrific things that have happened in our world is that it's going to be a worldwide event, not just a localized problem. But here's the second thing. Everybody will realize and act like the end is at hand. Very interesting. Now, I'm not saying that everybody's going to turn to God. In fact, the Bible teaches just the opposite, that many will turn their hearts hard toward God, even in this horrific time of tribulation. But in today's world right now, there are some people who deny that Jesus is coming back. In today's world right now, there are, there are many who laugh and joke about the return of Jesus Christ. But there is coming a time when the entire world will realize that the end is at hand. The entire world will come to the realization that the end is at hand. Let me read you from David Jeremiah's summary of the tribulation time. I told you that I'm using one of his books. And I thought he gave such a great summary and I'm going to tell you where he got this information in just a moment. And it's a little bit long, but let me read it to you. As he describes what the tribulation time will be like. He says, the central chapters of Revelation give us a vivid description of the horrors of the tribulation, period. Great wars will ravage the world as nations rise up lusting for conquest. All peace will end and rampant slaughter will bloody the earth. Hell and fire will burn up the earth's grass and destroy a third of all trees. Intense famine will dry up food supplies. Rivers and seas will become too polluted to sustain life. Many rivers will dry up completely. The sun will scorch the earth and its inhabitants like fire. A quarter of the world's population will die from war, starvation, and beastly predators. Giant earthquakes accompanied by thunder and lightning will destroy cities. Mountains will crash into the seas, killing a third of the fish. Tidal waves from the cataclysm from the cataclysm will sink a third of the world's ships. A massive meteor shower will strike the earth. Ashes and smoke rising from its devastation will hide the sun and moon. Swarms of demonic insects will darken the sun and inflict painful stings. Rampant epidemic plagues will kill one-third of all mankind. Everyone from national leaders to servants and slaves will flee the cities to hide in caves and under rocks. 
where, where do you suppose he came up with that? From Revelation. Let me give you the references. Those of you who like to take notes and study further. All he simply did in that description was to pull out of Scripture what the Bible describes as happening during that time. The Scriptures, in case you'd like to study them, Revelation chapter 6, verses 2 through 17. Revelation 6, 2 through 17. Revelation 8, 8 through 13. Verses 8 through 13. Revelation 9, verses 1 through 20. And finally, Revelation 16, verses 1 through 21. When the church is taken up into heaven and raptured from this earth, God will unleash a seven-year period of judgment against Satan and against the rebelliousness and sinfulness of mankind. It is sometimes called the great day of God's wrath. Let me show you this in Scripture. Revelation, go with me in your Bibles. Revelation chapter 6, verse 15 through 17. Revelation 6, verse 15 says this. Then the kings of the earth, the princes, the generals, the rich, the mighty, and every slave and every free man hid in caves and among the rocks and the mountains. They called to the mountains and the rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? Well, that is powerful. Once again, let me underline for you in your mind and maybe in your notes from Revelation 4 to Revelation 19. That much material is given to us to describe how awful that time will be. And to make matters worse, during this time, the Antichrist will come. The Antichrist will rise to power during this time. And we're going to look at the Antichrist next week, so I'm not going to get into that. We'll study that next week. But the tribulation will eventually end with the gathering of the nations at the Battle of Armageddon. We'll talk about that a little bit. And after the Battle of Armageddon will be the, the, the return of Jesus Christ to the earth. So, that's kind of a summary, a biblical summary of tribulation. I'd like to give you some of the perspectives on the tribulation. There's three different perspectives. I have talked about these briefly before, but let me give you just a little bit more information. How will the tribulation affect the church? Let's make it personal. How's the tribulation going to affect you? Scholars of biblical prophecy answer that question very differently. Men and women of great renown, men and women who have studied the Word of God, have very different approaches to that question. I'm going to give you the three most common and ask you to write some things down and then I'll, I'll explain why I believe what I believe. First of all, there is what we would call the post-tribulationism. Post-tribulationism says that the rapture of the church will occur after the seven-year tribulation time. This means that the Christians will be left on earth during that seven years and that we will endure all of the terrors of the tribulation along with unbelievers and then, after the tribulation, we will be taken up with Christ when the tribulation ends at His second coming, post-tribulationism. There are some scriptures you could point to to make a case for post-tribulationism. Uh, the second viewpoint is what's called mid-tribulationism. 
Mid-tribulationism, of course, says that the church will be raptured at the halfway point, that three and a half years into the seven-year time of tribulation, three and a half years into that time, the church will be raptured then. That, in other words, in this view, Christians will escape the last three and a half years of it, which is the worst part of the tribulation, because the tribulation time grows worse year after year. And so at the, at the halfway point, the three and a half year point, uh, this viewpoint says that's when the rapture will occur. The church will be taken out before it gets too bad. There are scriptures, again, you could point to. In fact, I think I could make a pretty good case for the mid-tribulation rapture. There are definitely scriptures you could point to to make a case for that uh, viewpoint. And then there's the pre-tribulationism. The pre-tribulation uh, viewpoint says that the rapture will take place before the tribulation. And all God's people said, yes, even so come Lord Jesus, right? This means that the church will be removed from the earth before the tribulation begins, sparing Christians from enduring those seven years of God's wrath that's poured out on the earth. I've told you before, I will say it again, uh, that I believe in the pre-tribulation rapture. Uh, but I will say to you very honestly and openly, there are problems with every viewpoint. It's not a seal, sealed case, a closed case by any means. Uh, now, I do believe in the pre-tribulation theory, and therefore I do not believe the church will suffer uh, the terrible miseries of the tribulation. So in our remaining time, in our remaining time together, I want to share with you four reasons I believe that we can be assured of God's protection from his coming wrath. Or to say it this way, four reasons I believe in the pre-tribulation viewpoint. So just let me give you those, and let me also say that I'm taking much of what I'm about to share with you from Dr. David Jeremiah's book, Is This the End? I think he makes a very good case in that book for the pre-tribulation rapture. But let me give you four reasons Four reasons why I believe we can be assured of God's protection from his coming wrath at the tribulation. Here's the first one. Number one, I believe that our protection is affirmed by Christ's promise. Our protection is affirmed by Christ's promise. There's a wonderful verse in Revelation 3.10. Would you look at that with me? Revelation chapter 3, verse 10. This is the, the letter to the church at Philadelphia, and it says, verse 10, Since you have kept my command to endure patiently, I will also keep you from the hour of trial that is going to come on the whole world to test those who live on the earth. Notice what he says here. I will keep you from the hour of trial. Not I will bring you through the hour of trial. I will keep you from the hour of trial. I believe it's an indication that God's people are exempt, not just from the trials of the tribulation, but we are exempt from the very tribulation itself. It's not like God said, okay, here's what's going to happen. You're going to go, you'll be in the tribulation, but I'll keep it from, from hurting you. That, that would be kind of like the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They went in the fire, they went through the fire, but God kept them from being hurt in the fire. I don't believe that's what this verse is talking about. I believe this verse is saying, it's not that I'm going to keep you from being hurt in the tribulation. I'm going to keep you from the tribulation. 
Now you say, well, pastor, do you have anything else to hang your hat on? Well, I do. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. Over to the left, 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. First Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 10. And to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from what, church? He rescues us from the coming wrath. To me, that's an indication that he's going to rescue us or remove us from the coming wrath that's going to be sent on the whole world at the time of tribulation. So that's one reason I believe in the pre-tribulation theory. Here's the second reason. Our protection is in accord with biblical precedent. In other words, there is biblical precedent that God does indeed protect his people. Again, let me show you this in Scripture. Throughout Scriptures, we see God protecting His people by removing them prior to His judgment on the evil around them. Let me say that one more time. In the Scripture, we see example after example of God protecting His people by removing them from the judgment that is going to come on the evil that is around them. Noah, of course, is the greatest example of this, that Noah... And his family were saved from the judgment of the flood. That God removed them from that judgment. Now, Yes, they experienced the flood, certainly. But they were removed from the earth and protected in the boat. Another example is Lot and his family. They were taken out of Sodom before judgment destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. God removed them before he sent judgment on the evil around them. Another example is the Israelite spies and Rahab and her family at Jericho. They were safely taken out of Jericho before the judgment of God fell on Jericho. You see this again and again throughout Scripture. Let me show you something that Peter said about this. 2 Peter chapter 2. 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 through 9. Peter says, chapter 2, verse 4, For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but sent them to hell, putting them into gloomy dungeons to be held for judgment, if he did not spare the ancient world when he brought flood on its ungodly people, but protected Noah, a preacher of righteousness, and seven others, if he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah by burning them to ashes and made them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly, And if he rescued Lot, a righteous man who was distressed by the filthy lives of lawless men. For that righteous man living among them day after day was tormented in his righteous soul by the lawless deeds he saw and heard. If this is so, verse 9, if this is so, then the Lord knows how to rescue godly men from trials and to hold the unrighteous for the day of judgment. God knows how to do it. This is something God does. I believe that's what he will do uh, right before the tribulation. He will remove his people before he judges the evil around them. Here's the third reason I, I believe in this theory, and that is our protection is apparent in the book of Revelation. Uh, to me, this one just makes so much sense. Uh, and, and I know for a lot of you, you think, man, Revelation is such a hard book to understand. And in some ways it is, and in some ways it's not. 
In fact, if you go to Revelation chapter 1, verse 19, Revelation chapter 1, verse 19, is really an outline of the entire book. Now get your, your pen handy. I'm going to give you some things to write down here as you take your notes. In Revelation chapter 1, verse 19, John gets this instruction. Write, therefore, what you have seen and what is now and what will take place later. He says, I want you to write down what you've seen. I want you to write down what is now. I want you to write down what will take place later. And that really is a summary, an outline of the entire book of Revelation. So let me give you the chapters to kind of stick to that, okay? The things you have seen would be Revelation chapter 1, verses 1 through 20. The things you have seen would be simply the first chapter of Revelation. John's vision that he had on the Isle of Patmos at the Lord's day is vision of Christ. He says, I want you to write about the things you have seen, chapter 1. Then secondly, he says, I want you to write about the things that are. That would be Revelations chapters 2 and 3. And that's where we find the letters to the seven churches of Asia Minor. Write about the things that are, the things that are occurring right now. That's Revelation chapter 2 and 3. And then he says, and I want you to write about the things that will take place later. That's Revelation chapter 4 through the end of the book. Chapter 4 through chapter 22. Now again, can I remind you that chapter 4 through chapter 19 deals almost entirely with the tribulation. So, John was instructed, here's what I want you to write about. I want you to write about what you've seen, chapter 1. I want you to write about things that are all right now, chapters 2 and 3. And I want you to write about things that will take place. And so John, in great detail, by the power of the Holy Spirit, given this insight, John, in great detail, talks about the pouring out of God's wrath on earth. Now, this is, to me, where it gets interesting. In Revelations chapter 1 through 3, we see the church mentioned 19 times. In chapters 1 through 3, we see the church mentioned 19 times. But in chapters 4 through 19, you know how many times we see the church mentioned? Zero. Now, why is it that all of a sudden, after chapter 4, the church is not mentioned? I believe it's because the church is not there church has been raptured doesn't it make sense to you listen I, I'm, I'm just from East Tennessee but this even makes sense to me doesn't it make sense to you that if the church was going to be in the tribulation time that something would be written in chapters 4 through 19 about church this is how you endure church this is what it's going to be like church this is what you need to prepare for church this is what you need to expect doesn't it make sense that God would address the church in some form or fashion? If he went to great detail to describe the wrath that's going to fall on the world, doesn't it make sense that he would describe in some detail how the church needed to respond? And what we see in chapters 1 through 3 is the church mentioned 19 times, and after chapter 3, we don't see the church mentioned. Because, I believe, the church is not there. The church has been raptured. Let me give you the fourth reason real quickly, and we're going to be done. Another reason I believe in the pre-tribulation rapture is, is this, number four. 
Our protection, I believe, is assured by God's love. Our protection from the tribulation is assured, I believe, by God's love. The Bible has many, many passages that tell us that God's wrath is reserved for those who do not know Him. That God's wrath is reserved for those who reject Him. That God's wrath is reserved for those who rebel against Him. But we don't see one passage of Scripture in the Bible that talks about God's wrath on those who love Him and know Him. In fact, we see just the opposite. Throughout the Bible, we see passage after passage after passage of God delivering those who love Him from the coming wrath. Let me give you three, and then we'll be done. Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. Verses 3 through 5. All of us who lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts like the rest, were by nature objects of wrath. That is, before we got saved, we were objects of wrath. But because of His great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with Him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages He might show the incomparable richness of His grace expressed in His kindness to us in Christ Jesus. I don't see any indication there that that God has reserved wrath for us, but I see the great expression of God's grace and God's love for us. Let me show you one that's even more clear in Romans chapter 5 verse 9 Romans chapter 5 verse 9 this one is so clear Romans chapter 5 verse 9 since we have now been justified by his blood that is his death on the cross how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him because we've been justified by his death on the cross, he says, listen, you're going to be saved from God's wrath. God's, the salvation that occurs in our life is not just saving us from our sin, it's also saving us from God's wrath. His judgment on that sin. Let me give you one final one. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 9. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 9. This is a good verse to go home on. Chapter 5, verse 9 says this. For God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. For God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through Jesus Christ. Do you know that you know Him? It's going to make a difference one day. You need to make sure you know the Lord Jesus. You need to make sure you have a relationship with Him. Because He can save you from your sins. He can save you from your past. He can save you and send you to heaven. But He's also going to save you from the coming wrath that will be poured out on this world as He judges sin. You see, here's here's what you get to choose between. Either 
you experience God pouring out His wrath on your sin. Or, Jesus experiences God's wrath for your sin. That's what the cross is all about. That Jesus experienced God's wrath on the judgment of sin. When I was 11 years old, I put my faith in that. That is what changed my life, and that is what changed my eternal destiny. I hope you can say that too. Father, in the name of Jesus, thank you for, again for your word, for the hope and the promise and the assurance that is found in this book, which is truth. And we rejoice that you love us enough to save us from the coming wrath. In Christ's name I pray, amen.